Hello and welcome to White Swarm, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw, and on this podcast, we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan, you can keep things turning. On this episode of White Swarm, we're going to be joined by Bruce Daisley, who ran Twitter across Europe, Middle East and Africa in the past and is now a renowned workplace culture expert who has written best-selling books and also hosts the top business podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Do get that if you can. During our chat, we discuss the importance of resilience for leaders and how the company you keep really matters. Before we hear that, I'm joined by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Welcome, Karen and Gary. Hey, Gav. Hi, Gav. Karen, Bruce was super impressive in talking about resilience and the misunderstandings many have of that word. It was clear that he believes in the importance of collective strength at the top table, including in crises. Have you seen that work well yourself? Yeah, I think through crisis, people become really strongly binded. And in those cases where we've been in the trenches with clients and colleagues for many hours and often many days on end, you know, working with people at their most vulnerable and at some of their lowest moments, this the shared experience that you have, it really creates a sense of camaraderie. You know, I've just worked through what's been coined one of the largest cyber attacks in Canadian history, and it had significant service disruptions. And because of the constant crisis of COVID, the teams were exhausted. They were so tired, but they were also really familiar with each other and had been working together in emergency structure. So it really helped with the flow and the share of information. But one of the things that was evident was the importance of having that diverse experience around the table and complementing each other and having the in-house operational expertise, but also communications, IT and legal counsel all at the table to ensure a stronger response. I really feel like those diverse perspectives and leveraging that collective strength around the table in a crisis is so important. Thanks, Karen. What about you, Gary? Well, so much of what Bruce spoke about had the effect of making you think a bit differently about things. And what I was fascinated by was the role that wider leadership culture can play in an organization's ability to respond effectively to a crisis. If there is that culture of fear, for want of a better expression, emanating from the top, then the leadership team will not perform effectively because they don't feel empowered to do so. And that in turn further isolates the CEO at the top feeling that they need to direct everything and it becomes a sort of vicious circle. And I go back then and think of different CEOs that I've seen in the room when something is going wrong and how they and the leadership teams are responding. And it actually makes a lot of sense even if I hadn't thought of it that way before. It also gives leaders something to think about in terms of how we help to set organizations up for success in advance by recognizing this, because I think a lot of what Bruce was getting at was around the need to build not just individual resilience, but organizational resilience. Thanks, Gary. Right, let's hear what Bruce had to say. Each episode of White Swan features an in-depth conversation with leaders so you get to learn about their crisis experience and the lessons you need to hear. Today, we have an absolutely cracking guest, Bruce Daisley has been described by Campion magazine as one of the most talented people in media. He previously ran Twitter's business in Europe, Middle East and Africa. He is now a writer and consultant on Better Working and has been published in Harvard Business Review, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Wired, The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph and many, many more titles. Bruce also has a superb podcast, which I highly recommend, called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and is a published author with his first book about improving work and work culture, a Sunday Times number one bestseller. Bruce, it is fantastic to have you join us on White Swan. Thank, thank you so much, Gavin. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So, Bruce, now tell those listeners who don't know you as such about your story. Where do you come from? How did you get to where you are today? Um... Yeah, so look, you know, I'm a Brummie, grew up in the council estate in Birmingham. Um, I, I think common with a lot of people, there wasn't necessarily a tradition of going to university in my family. So it was delightful that I was able to go to university. My, my dad had been sort of a bricklayer that became, he eventually got an office job selling shipping containers. My mum worked 
in places like Cadbury's, the chocolate factory, which when you're a little kid is a dream and sort of ended up working, um, working in the NHS. In fact, you know, for me, I went to, to university, studied economic history, didn't really know because there was no models of what jobs I could do or what jobs I would go into. Considered going into sort of law, I didn't really know how to even research what the the job of being a solicitor would involve. Um, I ended up really sort of stumbling into something where I was was debating what I was going to do. I think there was probably a good likelihood, because I'd gone back to working in bar work in Birmingham um, when I graduated, there was a good likelihood I would just end up working my way up through that. But... um, I drew a cartoon CV and like I've always had this obsession with brand new pop music. So, you know, nothing too craft beery, you know, nothing too sort of guitar-y. The more sort of lowbrow, the better. But I've always had an obsession with that. And so I sent this cartoon CV to um, around sort of 30 different record companies. And remarkably, I got some really good responses from it. In fact... Someone offered me the job of post boy of Virgin Records, which I have to tell you was my dream to get in the, you know, the the ground floor. Virgin Records was one of the big five at the time to get in the ground floor there. It was a dream. And as Karen Harries offered me the job, she said, um, the only thing is you're going to be driving down to the post office every day to collect all of the, the mail, drop off all the CDs. And I said to, to Karen, Karen, I don't have my driving license yet, but I have done one of those crashed courses, one of those accelerated learning programs before. And I know that you can phone up and you can get a driving test short term. Why don't I do two more weeks of lessons, have my driving test. If I pass my test, I'll I'll start the following Monday. I mean, talk about giving yourself logistical challenge. And if I don't pass, I'll give you the job back. Well, here you go. I failed my driving test. I didn't observe properly uh, somewhere near the Stratford Road in Birmingham. So anyway, so like, so so I ended up sort of getting a job through that CV that obviously was doing something right. Uh, I ended up getting a job at Capital Radio and had a started uh, a career in media from there. Ended up working, eventually going to work for Google and and then for Twitter. Wow, that's an amazing story. And look, we can talk about a load of different things with you, but I would really love to focus in on the resilience of leaders when they're going through tough times because we speak to leaders every single podcast and it's very clear that very few people look out for them at the top when the proverbial hits the fan and it can be a very lonely existence. Um, And you've faced some tough times in your career. Every leader does. Um, You know, Twitter, you've been criticised over the platform's response to trolls, etc., including some very high profiles. How did you deal with that? Did you sort of find it lonely at the top? Yeah, it's really interesting that you pose the question in that way because, look, I've just spent two years researching a book on resilience. And the interesting thing about resilience is that it's got this sort of semi-mythical, magical quality. In fact, a friend of mine, I saw her say the other day um, that it's become almost a word that you can't use amongst staff in she works in an NHS hospital. She said, you can't use the word anymore now because people are so weary of this, this invocation that we're, we've all got to be resilient. And I think, you know, for me, that, that's why I was so curious about it because it's become a word that either people have found themselves being sent on resilience courses at their work or it's become weaponized that, you know, we might tell young people they need to be more resilient. And it's sort of become this a sort of insistence that we make of people and often the experience that if you're instructed to be resilient, um, it's a little bit like the gentleman who came to fix my Wi-Fi here. Uh, he said to me uh, some workman wisdom. He said, never in the history of calming down has someone calmed down by being told to calm down. And, and broadly, my feeling about resilience is something similar. Never in the history of resilience has someone been resilient because someone said to them, you need to be resilient? It just doesn't work like that. You know, be more resilient. Well, instruct me how I can be resilient. So, you know, I've, I, I've had this sort of curiosity about why it's got this magical property to it that we demand resilience of other people. And yet no one really instructs us how to be resilient. And what you discover is a really interesting thing about resilience is that the um, resilience, I, I think not only there, there is the 
the writing about resilience, which very much comes from a very strongly individualistic, I think, uh, conservative with a small c brand of American politics. But in addition, it's there's almost like a an orthodoxy around resilience, which encompasses adjacent themes like growth mindset. It, it encompasses things like uh, grit, which is like a big theme in American schools. And what you find when you really delve into all of the, the research on these things is that the research behind them is pretty tentative. I think you could broadly say the, the, the theory of growth mindset is a really charming myth. It's another myth. It's like resilience, a really charming myth. You'll struggle to find in the UK, and I, I'll, I know because I searched, uh, any school website that doesn't have growth mindset listed on its criteria. It's part of the uh, national curriculum in Northern Ireland. It's part of the, the government's plan for business growth mindset. It's like it's everywhere. And yet the really interesting thing about growth mindset, which is, look, it's a charming idea. It's a charming idea that whether you can learn or not, or whether you can't learn or not, you're right with both answers because what determines whether you can improve is whether you believe you can improve. And it's a really charming idea. But this, the research into it is, is so flawed that one of the researchers says pretty much the only thing that seems to determine whether growth mindset experiments work or not is whether Carol Dweck was involved in them or not. All of the ones she's not involved in don't work. All of the ones she is involved in work. And, you know, it, it begs a really big question. This this resilience orthodoxy that encompasses growth mindset, it encompasses the work of people like Martin Seligman. It's a really convenient myth about individualism. And as a consequence, look, it's it's the it's the dominant hegemony of, of education thinking um, amongst schools. And yet the evidence for it is, I think, pretty flaky when you actually look into it. It's really interesting because it sounds to me what you're saying is that we have a buzzword, we have a myth, and we are. it's kind of like saying to people, oh, just grow some, get on with it. That's not giving actual advice on how to move forward. But really importantly, it's not identifying the barriers that are impeding whatever growth you need or whatever it is you want to do and identifying how to remove barriers this sort of this whole idea of it's if you think a certain way you'll be fine it's so old-fashioned isn't it it's so out of date what you end up thinking is you end up thinking so why have i been sold this version of resilience what's the reason why people have said this what you discover spoiler alert is that resilience in the beautiful words of someone who featured in my research, resilience, she, she said, resilience, well, you can't be resilient on your own, can you? And there is the fundamental truth about resilience. Resilience is a collective strength, not an individual strength. Now, if you've got someone at work who is your employer, you've got someone at work who's showing signs of being burnt out, exhausted, it's very easy for the employer to, to point to that person, ascribe blame to that person and say, well, look, I'm going to send you on some resilience training because you need to deal with this. And in fact, that's what happened. Um, there was, I think, West Dorset Health Authority in 2003 where the Health Standards Authority Agency said that they had such a stressful culture that it needed to be addressed. And what organizations like that health authority set about doing is thinking, okay, so if it seems here we've got so much stress, how about if that's not a problem of the climate that we've created, but it's a problem of the people who work here? It's a brilliant reframing. It's not our problem. It's your problem. It's not that we've actually, uh, we've created something that's toxic and untenable. No, you, you need to be more resilient. And it's a brilliant reframing. It's a sort of classic example. So that's really interesting from a leadership perspective in two ways. It's, so it's for them to ensuring they have a proper understanding of what is really happening and not just falling for their own spin in terms of employees' mindset, employee thinking, and making sure there's regular check-ins on that is vital, isn't it? And then there's a, their own mindset in terms of their own resilience, which is a separate thing. But it can only start when they understand what the mindset of the employee base and, and the barriers for the employee base being resilient are. Precisely. Broadly, what you discover is that, you know, once you establish that um, these these 
compelling and many times repeated evidence that we draw our strength from other people. That, you know, someone striding onto a football pitch in front of 70,000 opposition fans, well, you know, much more easy for them to do that if they feel connected to their own teammates, they feel supported by their own teammates. If they stride onto the pitch and they feel alone, actually, it's a lot harder for them. We draw the strength from being part of a we. You know, it's not about me, it's about we. And it's so interesting how commonly these themes come up when you when you look into the research. Um, the, the notion that if we're going to dwell in this individualism and, and this the individuality, it's when we tend to feel most alone. And of course, the application that's most relevant of this in the last two years is that, you know, we've felt severed from our tribe. We've felt disconnected from people around us. We've lacked any moments of shared experience and shared joy. You know, very few people would characterize the way we've worked over the last two years. It might be more productive, but very few people would say it was more enjoyable. Now, that's not to say that we need to be with each other every day. But what it does mean is that probably we need to be more intentional about how we create a sense of collective strength, how people feel something part of something bigger than themselves. And I think that's a really important consideration going forwards. I mean, I think it was Susan Pinker, uh, the uh, author, who wrote, talked about how people need people. We, we need them to get through. And so what I'm hearing from you is that it's been a really difficult period, partly because we can't get together physically. But that then is really interesting coming from a former top boss at Twitter, where we are told that these channels are there and bringing us closer together. They're, the globe, McLuhan's global village is happening for in reality with these channels bringing everything together. But do you buy that still? Or do you think actually it's human contact, it's face-to-face contact that's vital for resilience? Um, I, I think feeling seen is the most important thing. And um, so what I mean by that is, you know, like I am very strongly of the opinion that social media um, has enabled people to feel like they've found their community. You know, I'm someone, I'm obsessed with tennis and I'm obsessed with pop music. And what you generally find is when you meet 100 people, of those 100 people, one of them will be interested in tennis and one of them will be interested in the sort of pop music I like. And so as a consequence of that, you never bring up either topic. And so it, it actually, it's incredibly isolating. In the jargon, you'd call that my social identity. And what you discover is that people, when they feel acquainted with people who share that same social identity to them it's enriching for them it's where they draw their strength you see really strong evidence that when people feel like their social identity is reflected in the people they spend time with they feel more fortitude they feel more strength they feel more resilient and so I think that's the most critical thing because you see really good evidence of this when it doesn't work one of the interesting things there was a a a best-selling book in the US around the millennium called Bowling alone by a guy called Robert Putnam, very famous book. And broadly, his conclusion was that um, if you're over the age of 50, the best thing you you can do for your health, bar nothing, if you're a smoker, if you're a drinker, the best thing you can do for your health is join a group. And he he said, you know, it, it effectively will halve your likelihood of dying next year if you join a group. But what you discover about that is that if you join a group and you don't feel reflected, you don't feel connected with the people in that group, it doesn't have the magical effect. So if you join a group and it's people like you or it's people that share the passions that you've got, it's pretty strongly proven to be protective against depression, protective against all manner of conditions that we might consider unrelated, you know, um, heart attacks, lung disorders, high blood pressure. It's really protective. There is something strange about something magical about feeling part of a group. Now, knowing all of that, you would call that, the way they would describe that is that, um, you know, we've all become sort of familiar with the, uh, the the idea of studying diseases over the last couple of years. But um, you would suggest that actually that's something that sort of extends beyond like the specific causes. These are common social cause for a lot of conditions from depression to all of the things I talked about. Now, once you've established that and 
the, the evidence of that I could I could regale you for hours going through. Once you've established that, you then start thinking, well, when it comes to some of these things that we're looking people to manifest, uh, maybe there's a common social cause to that. And so that's where you end up with resilience. You end up with actually working out. There's a whole load of evidence that suggests that we draw resilience from feeling supported, connected, enhanced by the people around us. There's a really beautiful thing that when Jurgen Klopp first took over his previous club uh, before he joined Liverpool, Bayern Leverkusen, I think, um, and, and the first thing he said to the authorities there is he said, we need to go from feeling like me to feeling like we. And there's an incredible wisdom in that. When we do feel like we're part of a we, it seems to be the most enhancing thing. Now, to your original point, what are the challenges of that for leaders? Well, leaders quite often, you know, they don't feel part of a we. They might feel isolated, separated. They can't necessarily be tr- transparent with the, the people they're working with. And so what you'd say there is finding a moment where you can be part of a group, finding finding a moment where you feel like you, you have, you're around people who share your specific identity is really helpful and I think you know that's probably one of the things we miss because we're so fixated on this individualistic idea of strength performance we miss the fact that most of the evidence is in favor of a social a social origin for it that's fascinating Bruce and one of the things that I have discovered in recent months is the research around football fans coming out of COVID and lockdowns and the significant mental health problems that are in existence today that people are directly relating to having to go into lockdown fans not being able to get together with other fans for football matches and they have lost their we they lost a common connection and it had a dramatic impact and you could also probably make the assumption it's going to lead to different behaviors now they're back and we're sort of seeing that with behavior of fans across the uk which has not been very pleasant, it's fair to say. So all of these things are really interesting studies, actually, to to what you're suggesting here. The theory is absolutely right. One question I would have as leaders, does this make purpose even more important? Because purpose creates a common why we're doing something together. Um, does that help if people feel a connection to the purpose behind why they're doing what they do? So I think the themes of, of identity and purpose are interrelated. You know, I'm a touch cautious about purpose because I think it's been so heavily misappropriated and it's often used to substantiate things that I think don't necessarily wash. You know, someone telling you that our purpose is, you know, you're a washing powder, but someone's telling you our purpose is to enrich the lives of people across the developing world. It's like, come on, we're selling personal. You know, let's let's not overdress it. However, what you discover is that, you know, people who work in retail stores, people who work in hospitals, quite often they, they can share a sense of real identity about who they are, how they're bound together. So for me, I find the idea of identity definitely adjacent to those themes of purpose, but I find it's, it's got a, a touch more believability to it to me. But yeah, absolutely similar themes, similar themes about, you know, I chatted to um, a guy who wrote a book about the All Blacks. And, you know, he talked specifically, really, you know, he was talking about their their purpose and their objective. But really, he was talking about how they were trying to create a revitalized identity for the All Blacks. You know, it, it had this legacy reputation. It hadn't necessarily advanced with the times. And they needed to create a, an identity that wasn't just being passed to these people, but they felt like they had a say in how they were going to enhance it and develop it and I think you know those themes of identity when you start looking for them they're there really potently now let's think about how themes of identity are going to intersect with work in the coming period the first way that we might is that what we know is that when big social schisms exist in societies they generally happen you know in revolutions in the most extreme form but they generally happen when a series of identities overlap with each other with a schism between other identities that overlap. So your ethnic divisions are the, the one. So if you've got ethnic divisions overlapping with the one ethnicity is really rich, one ethnicity is really poor, that generally is the, the origin of societal collapse and, and, and revolution. But the one thing we might see, if it's not too overwrought, we might start seeing a situation where 
these very different identities within workplaces. You've got older workers broadly show a preference to want to work from home more. Uh, they've prob- they're probably dialing in from, from a really nice spare room. They probably earn more money. And then you're going to have younger workers who earn less, who are in the office more, who probably start perceiving those old workers as maybe not working as hard as them or as lazy. Now, you can definitely see unchecked, if you played that, that down the road two years, you might start seeing the identity issues start becoming incredibly polarizing at work. You know, whether that is you then overlay something about their politics being different. Older workers are more likely to be conservative or, or Brexit supporting or and, and younger workers are more likely to be progressive and uh, remain based. But you can start seeing that these schisms, because they all have a an adjacency to each other, you can start seeing that young workers in that scenario might not respect older workers and vice versa. Now, so those themes of identity, now you've been able to see that, you can see, okay, so what we need to do here, we need to ensure that our culture in our organisation here has created a really strong identity about what we're about. This is sometimes called difference between bonding capital and bridging capital. Bonding capital is that, you know, we're all Fulham fans together and we, um, you know, we, we all live nearby. And bridging capital is that, okay, we don't necessarily come from the same background. We don't necessarily have the, the same age, but we're all part of extinction rebellion whatever it is now any organization right now should be thinking about how can we create that bridging capital where you know everyone in the workforce feels connected to what we're doing so that does go to an idea of purpose that you're talking about there but i think these are probably the big themes that organizations need to be thinking about in the uh in the next few months i think it's interesting um that you get into that and i absolutely agree identity is vital i'm just wondering what your views are on the sort of hybrid working culture that COVID has ushered in, really, and whether it's whether it's viable. You know, as you said, it works for some people and it doesn't work for others. So is it viable then, in a way? And there was a really interesting article by Camilla Cavendish in the Financial Times weekend a couple of weekends ago, where she talked about her concerns that, um, in effect, people were... The, the great resignation that we're seeing at present, lots of people leaving roles... A lot, of, a lot of that may come from people forgetting what they truly enjoyed about work, which was colleagues, was getting together. It was the physical being together and having the chats and working together rather than remotely. Do you think there's anything in that? Look, it's hard. Number one, it's hard not to be optimistic that we might be returning to a more normal year this year. And so probably I spend all of my time consulting with companies about their hybrid policy and, and how they're going to work out their their way to work in the future and for the first time you know the thing that we've been discussing for two years is you need to start planning some experiments for the first time we're going to start seeing these experiments in action but the critical challenge for any organization right now is that for many people hybrid working won't be the best of both worlds it'll be the worst of both worlds and the challenge is is that if you've spent 20 quid 30 quid getting to the city center that you meant to work in because you, you don't have a monthly pass anymore. You're paying as you go. You get yourself a little coffee. You go to the office. You get yourself a sandwich. You know, you're 30, 40 quid down. It feels like an investment, right? It feels like, okay, you know, I could have had a nice night out for that. You get to the office and then you spend your day on back-to-back video calls. And very quickly, you start thinking, I'm not sure I want to keep doing that. What, what I'm going to be like 90 quid down by the end of the week because it's money that now, unfortunately, has gone back into our disposable income. I'm going to be 90 quid down by the end of the week and I've just done video calls from the office. I'm going to tell my boss I'm not coming in tomorrow. And very quickly, firms have found themselves going remote by accident. Now, I, I worked with one fashion retailer last year and they they were starting to see this in action. They'd gone back to the office. They were doing two days a week in the office. And people said... You know, when I do back-to-back video calls from home on a Wednesday, it kind of feels like that's what my job is. When I do it from the office and I can see people wandering around outside, but I'm chained to this screen or worse, I'm sitting in the corner with a pair of headphones on trying to keep the noise down so I can understand what's going on. Very quickly, I'm like, this just doesn't work. And we're going to have a lot of people who probably either by the end of this year or the end of next year organizations will be saying we lost something when we went to this it's not as good 
we know we can't have people back in the office five days a week because it's now the norm that that isn't the case and we've lost something. And there's definitely going to be a generation of managers who don't adapt to the change, who sit and, and grumpily bemoan the fact over a gin and tonic. They bemoan the fact that things were better in their day, no doubt. And so to try and get ahead of that, organizations need to start saying, OK, so, you know, one of the best things I saw, one organization said our culture is Wednesday plus one. Fantastic. Right. Okay. So what do they mean by that is a real value to team cohesion. When we feel part of a congregation, you know, I could show you a hundred scientific papers. When that when we do things alongside other people, it elevates our endorphin levels. It makes us feel connected. It sort of activates oxytocin. We we sort of feel connected to the people around us to an extraordinary extent. And so knowing that like Wednesday plus one is like Wednesday's our time where we're a, we're a con- congregation. So if there's big meetings, we're going to do them then. If there's lunches or dinners, we're going to do them then. Plus one is because they want the office to have a little bit of background noise all the time. They want Now, it might well be offices of the future. People say, look, our culture is Tuesday plus one and we're in a co-working space and, 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 and we share that space with two other organizers. whatever it might be, but people who are intentionally thinking, right, let's extrapolate these trends and make it work. What we know broadly is most people have missed being around other people. And when we overcome the reticence that some of us are going to have about going into crowded spaces, some people are not going to be comfortable getting back on public transport or going into busy meeting rooms for a while. But when we overcome that, then, you know, the question will be just creating a rule, which is, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, does that actually achieve what you want? I spoke to one really senior leader of one organization. He said, we're really looking forward to being back in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday so I can go out and see customers. And I said, okay, that's interesting because you're saying then you're just going to be using it as a base on those days. So your colleagues won't see you because you'll be out seeing customers. So why are you mandating Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday if actually that's not what you're going to be doing? Far better, surely, to try and work out why you need rules. Now, the organization, that organization said Wednesday plus one, they've decided, okay, this is why we need Wednesday because we want to feel like we're together. And this is why plus one. Now that for me feels more endurable, more sustainable, more progressive than saying Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So I suspect by the end of this year, a lot of people will be saying, doesn't feel the same. We can't get people back five days a week. I suspect there's a lot of disappointment ahead. That's fascinating. I love that. Why do we have the rules question, which I think very few of us ask, which is a really great one. Now, let's focus in on crises for a moment. You were actually in Beirut when the biggest peacetime explosion shattered the city. I'm not suggesting it was anything to do with you, Bruce, but you were there (laughs) at the same time. Talk us through that experience from a sort of crises overview. What did you see happening? How did you see the city uh, react? And did it fit what you expected? To be honest, a lot of my obsession, curious curiosity with resilience came from that moment. So this is something, it's it's definitely worth revisiting on YouTube. We were a couple of miles away. We were in a, a place called Jenner. And what happened was I was sitting down. We'd been out to like a public swimming bath during the day. And the whole building that we were in just trembled and shook. And, you know, it felt like an earthquake, in fact. And so, you know, me being outside the UK, we don't get those in the UK. Oh, this is fun. My first earthquake. It went on for so long uh, that it 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 began to sort of feel, okay, this feels bigger than an earthquake. It, It felt like it was going on for a long time went from the bedroom I was in into the lounge and uh, and everyone was there. Just as I got to the lounge, all the windows blew in of the apartment. And let me tell you that you very quickly, so firstly, you're surrounded with people, like the, my family, my partner's family, um, we're surrounded with people. Everyone's looking at each other, not trying to give off a sense that we're panicking ourselves, but trying to read the panic in other people's faces. And the windows being blown in, what happened then was all of the air in the apartment was sucked out. Now, let me tell you, that makes a singular sound that I don't think I've ever heard before in real life. You know, it's sort of the thing that you've seen on bomb blasts. I, I presume it was just all the air going, being sucked into the explosion. 
but it was a terrifying sound. And, you know, so as a consequence, like everyone's, there's all these texts coming through. It's this, it's this, it's this. So the fact it was discovered, I mean, only emerged over the course of a few hours that it was an explosion, that thousands of kilograms of explosives had been left unattended in the port for 10 years. And so, you know, there was a lot of things. There was a lot of anger. Uh, Beirut is pretty much in a state of bankruptcy at the moment anyway. Lebanon is in a state of, because their banks have collapsed. So people were already impoverished. Most people had lost their lifetime savings in the preceding six months. Then this happens and it just felt like the final indignity. But th- that was where it became obsessed with resilience because all of the newspaper headlines, the BBC reported, if we know one thing for a fact, the Lebanese are resilient people. The New York Times said the truth is that the Lebanese are resilient people. It's like, hang on a sec. Wh- what on earth does that mean? Because, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily seeing an evidence of something su- substantially different. What you discover is, no, it just means bad stuff happens to them and they seem to get on with it. And so back to that notion that, you know, Resilience is just what we ask people to demonstrate and go away from us. Yeah, go and be resilient. It's like, you know, we ask, we, there's lots of use of the word resilient about the people of Flint, Michigan. I'm not sure if you sort of, you know, this, there was the, the Water Authority in Michigan uh, about 15 years ago, 15 years ago, decided to change the way that water was purified there. All of the pipe work across the city um was corroded and they've had lead in their water for the last 15 years. I think it's meant to be resolved now. This year is the year it's meant to be resolved. But the people of Michigan have been told, you need to be resilient. Like, what? It feels like this politicised thing. It's just like, oh, that sounds really bad for you. Go and be resilient. And that's what I felt. It felt like a politicised word. No, actually, when you look at the people who, the most famous scientist in terms of resilience is a psychologist called Martin Seligman and he's a formidably accomplished uh, scientist one of the the founders of positive psychology but his whole philosophy in life is that we need to get away from victims moaning about things and we need to we need to ask people to stand on their own two feet Mm, which is pretty consistent with that underpinning philosophy of resilience so that that, you know that explosion was one of the the reasons why i became so fixated with it it's fascinating isn't it because you're right the politicization of the word is key here and you know what's the opposite of resilience (laughs) you know and it's uh you're saying you must be seen to be resilient or you're not going to be fit uh, for purpose really in most situations and it's appalling and if you if we take on that thinking though that you've just set out and the need to have communities around you to provide resilience, etc. As a leader, you know, we talked about it being lonely at the start. It then suggests to me that having the right people around you, having the right team around you is a vital element of being a leader who can do things in the right way. Uh, and I know feel bad, bad about using the word resilient really, because I'm now starting to question my use of it. Um, but, that's what we're saying, isn't it really? And so when you look at people, like your family looked at each other when the windows came through, you're getting a true reflection of the situation rather than a what you want people to think you're thinking, which is because leadership's about clarity and openness and all of those things. It's not about trying to pretend to be something you're not, though you, of course, people will read your face and you can't always be clear and open in public. But with your top team, you need to be. Absolutely. And it's really interesting how potent this is. So when you look into moments of collective hardship, you know, these these, um, wonderful work done studying the aftermath of natural disasters. There's a book called Paradise Made in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. And she talks, she looks specifically like a series of different natural disasters. Now, our expectation after something hideous has happened is there there'll be societal collapse. In fact, you know, there's an expectation amongst psychologists that there'll be mass panic. And broadly, mass panic is never exhibited. What you find is that people generally, in fact, there was like a, a leading American expert who ended up working for the State Department um, who studied natural disasters. And he discovered that what you are actual, actually find is you find sort of a collective strength uh, rather than sort of this individualistic panic, you find collective strength in these moments. Really interesting. You can find 
beautiful examples of it. In Kosovo, a fifth of the population were killed in, in the, the Kosovo conflict around the millennium. And, you know, so a really hideous. But by one account, all of the, the dwellings were destroyed in, in sort of certain, certain parts. But when you look back at some of the testimonies of people who were there, they often report oh, in hindsight, that was our happiest time of our life. There was a real strength, you know, there was immense sadness, but we were so strongly bonded. You see some similar things in some of the, the testimonies of the Second World War. You, the, there's a, a British programme called the Mass Observation Programme, which was just like a series of diaries. Now, you you know, it comes with a health warning. You know, is there, is there some sort of rose tinting about these things? But you find like a lot of discussions of collective strength there was an american air forces um officer sent to the uk to write a report on the state of morale in 1943 and his observations it's all it's all published now but his observations include the the phrase um these are the happiest people that i i can ever recall seeing they they seem to be united in a strength a, a sense of collective joy they greet strangers in the street now look Let's presume there's a, there's a degree of rose tinting. The Kosovan situation probably wasn't glorious to live through. There were probably grim moments. But what you get from all of those things is you find that when people do feel this shared experience, that their misfortune is shared with people around them, it seems to be protecting. And, you know, so for a leader, I would say the really critical thing there is, OK, maybe it's about you've got your top team that you feel real strong affinity with. You know, you've got people who can speak candidly to you and you can, these are sort of, these are real psychological safety with your top handful of people. Or it might be that actually you sort of, you want to build yourself a network and maybe you're a keen cyclist, cycling's the new golf. Or you maybe you're a sort of, um, maybe you've got like one or two things, or maybe you have dinner with three people every Tuesday. But trying to find yourself something that's going to give you that, collective strength that that sense of support is is really critical one of the things that we've observed as well how important our families are on these things these um really interesting adjacency in terms of the study of teenagers these probably one of the leading experts studying teenagers is a woman called Jean Twenge who um, teaches at the University of San Diego and Jean Twenge has done a lot of work. She wrote an article for The Atlantic in 2017 called How Smartphones Destroyed a Generation. Yeah, real, very evidence-based, very data-led. She, she reported something really fascinating about the start of lockdown. Now, we're going to rewind the clock. And I think, you know, lockdown's been going on and, and this situation's been going on so long that we might mix up what's happened since with what happened at the start of lockdown. But she observed teenagers. And in the first three months of lockdown, do you remember that strange time you were in, you were trying to, you weren't even allowed to, to venture out. You know, you're allowed to do your sort of designated exercise, which was normally going to queue at Tesco's to get some toilet rolls. You know, you, you sort of, you had, you had little routines in that first three months. And let's, let's not mix up what happened less. What you discovered was teenagers who reported feeling more connected to their family, their mental health improved. You know, so they... They teenagers who felt let's work it so a sense of social cohesion with their families, who felt like having an evening meal with their mom or dad or carer or whoever it was, they reported their mental health and improved. Now, Jean Twenge talks about how young kids are often generation me. And, you know, she was really surprised with that data. She was like expecting to see, you know, the thing that we heard a lot, mental health had suffered. And she said, actually, what she'd seen was if you could shift in these teenagers from generation me to generation we, it seemed to be massively enhancing for their mental health. So, look, you know, an adjacency in so much of the evidence we see, whatever way we look at it, whether it's the Jurgen Klopp, whether it's the Gene Twenge, whether it's the your football fans going to, to football games. When we feel part of a, collect, a collective we, it seems to be one of the most protective things for us. That's really interesting. And particularly for those leaders, it's finding the right people. Because in the UK at the minute, we are seeing a political crisis playing out because a prime minister has, in effect, broken his old, own rules. And based on what we're saying today, you can see why with one line of thought you want to bring your team together they're going through really tough times it's a busy environment and all but you can also see the danger of having just yes men around you 
not stepping in and stopping things happening when they are clearly an error of judgment. And um, this sort of brings you back to that. It's having that right team around you to have open and honest conversations, but also finding a way to coalesce a team. It doesn't have to be over drinks, (laughs) but find a way to coalesce a team and make them feel part of something. I think you've articulated precisely the challenge because we can't just summon a a collection of five people we trust who are going to provide us good advice. We can't just Uber them. There's no app for it. And so building these things is really difficult. You can definitely see a leader might say, okay, right, what I need to do is I need to join a networking group with other people like me. But the challenge is, unless you're building strong bonds with those people, it's not going to serve the purpose. You know, turning up once a month on a Monday to be in a room of 100 people who to listen to a speaker you might form some like weak tie links with with new people but there's not a strong affinity with there with you you need to really think about what's going to give you access to some collective strength um some psychological safety you know th- those things i think are going to be really telling it's really i bet for you just uh, it's probably people you talk or play tennis with at, uh, or pop music it's it's that weird outlets actually where you can talk things through and explain things in a way that you're assuming people don't know the detail of, so aren't part of your inner professional crowd. And that actually probably helps you make sure you're getting things right. It certainly does for me when I think about the people I am a runner. So I love to run with people. You run long, long distances and you chat an awful lot. It's a conversation really, rather than a run. That's the good bit of it. But those are my networks, which help me. Is, is that what you see in terms of the research you're doing? Precisely, precisely. You need to feel some affinity. You need to feel some uh, reflection in in this. Precisely, you know. And look, it's why these things are so elusive. But there was, um, you you see time and time again in research. You know, back to that Robert Putnam thing. The best thing you can do for yourself right now is join a group. And I think you know we see this time and time again, really. So. What I'm hearing is our key advice for leaders to make sure they have a network outside of just a professional network. They can talk frankly about issues with uh, just because that will give them a resilience to get through whatever moments they face. And it, yeah, you know, ideally, but if it's just what you talked about there, you've got a group that you go running with and you've got a bond of people there it's incredibly helpful. There's one thing that really runs through all of the health and well-being evidence, that people who are religious have better health outcomes than people who aren't. And what you might conclude looking at this research is that's not because God is protective, although maybe he is, and what a fool I am for not believing it. But it's because feeling connected to a group and feeling the support of, of a group is itself really protective. So there's just really important lessons. So look, you know, if you're a leader, then when are your moments when you're a group? When are the moments when you feel in a, a group of people that you share something in common with? And if you don't have any of those at all, um, then, you know, it might be your goal just to build one of those this year, I think. Fantastic, Bruce. Well, Bruce, that's a great place uh, to finish this fantastically interesting uh, conversation. Bruce, you've gone from nearly being a postboy at Virgin Records to being the poster child of all things good in the workplace, which I love. Uh, We find a lot in that. Uh, I think we need to start questioning why we do things and why we put the rules in place that we do and just try and make sure we've got the outlets to have conversations with people we trust uh, in networks outside our professional world. Um, Thank you for being such a brilliant guest today. If you want to hear more from Bruce, please download his podcast on a regular basis. You will not regret it. Sign up for his newsletter, which you can do so if you Google Bruce or link in with him. But Bruce, thank you so much. Gavin, thank you so much. Really grateful. Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Bruce. We continued off mic for quite some time and could easily have kept going all day. I really do encourage you to sign up to his newsletter on workplace culture and to have a listen to his excellent podcast when you can. I'm joined again by Karen White of National and Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Now, one of the things mentioned in our chat was the loneliness of being a top leader, particularly in a crisis. This is something we all see played out an awful lot these days, and it is far from a good trend. 
Towards the end of our interview, we talked about the need to have other people often outside your organization and even your sector who you can have open and honest conversations with. Being forced to explain things to non-experts in layman's terms is really, really important. And if you trust those people, it's a very, very good thing, enabling you to think differently about the situation faced. Gary, have you seen that work in reality, though? Well, funnily enough, I had lunch um, last week with the UK boss of uh, a well-known high street brand. Um, and over the course of the lunch, he revealed that he was in a, in a band. Um, he had a recording studio in his sheds, and he's releasing an album later this year. Um, now, I've no idea if he talks to his bandmates about his working life. Um, I'd imagine probably not. But hearing Bruce talk about the incredible benefit to individual performance of feeling part of something um, made me think about that. Because at the time, my initial reaction was, how do you find the time for that? Um, but now I think it's probably making him uh, a better leader. And I think David Solomon at Goldman Sachs is another, isn't he? He DJs in his spare time. Um, so clearly something that you think is a distraction from work is actually also making these people uh, better leaders. And I thought that was the point that I took out of it. Well, Gary, that's that's an interesting story. Uh, forget White Snake. Maybe we can have White Swan the band now. <laughs> what about you, Karen? Well, it's interesting. As I was listening to um, him share his thoughts, I was like, to me, that sounds about like keeping it real. You know, I think it's natural that we surround ourselves with people that share our values and thinking, and we all bring our own personal biases to the table when we're assessing a situation. So it's really important to get in the headspace of your key audiences. And so for me, if I'm looking for a general public point of view, I'll often run a concept or approach by my mother or my grandmother. And I know they are going to give me an unfettered and forthright perspective a good heated dinner table conversation. It'll often see us debating an issue that they saw in the news and they'll have no idea that we're actually supporting or working on it behind the scenes. So I find it really entertaining and insightful to focus group with family or friends. And it's a lot of fun to kind of use them as a litmus test to kind of figure out how it's really playing out in the real world. Thanks, Karen. One of the most satisfying parts of what I do professionally, and I'm sure you both feel the same, is being able to have those conversations with CEOs when they are facing difficult moments in their career. They don't want yes men or women. They want an honest assessment of the situation. Most of the time, they already know what they need to do. They're good leaders after all, but they just need a little external nudge and expert validation to make it happen. At times, this means we get to become counsellors as much as advisors. And it's a real privilege, I have to say, because you can see these leaders working through the issue and taking leadership and dealing effectively with it. It was so good to hear from Bruce about how resilience is more than just a mindset. It is people coming together for each other, both in our professional and personal lives. So if you're a leader feeling lonely at the top, make sure you put the right people inside and outside your organisation around you so you can properly, without judgment, chat things through. It really will make you and your organisation much stronger and so much more resilient. We're going to end it there. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay safe. White Swan is brought to you by Hanover Communications and its global crisis network. To find out more, please visit hanovercoms.com. That's Hanover, H-A-N-O-V-E-R, comms, C-O-M-M-S dot com.